welcome. Hey, if you're new, um, we're glad you're here. We hope you've had a great experience so far. I know a lot of you are joining us online as well, so I'd like to welcome you also. And we are in week three of this teaching series. We're trying to see how we can find a purpose and the painful situations that we face in life. I'm excited to share the message with you today. If you're jotting things down, if you're typing them out in your phone, how do you find pain, excuse me, how do you find purpose and the pain from obedience? Now, last week, if you weren't here, we talked about how you actually find purpose in the pain of our own doing. So that message is posted on our website. And sometimes when you're facing pain, you know you contributed to it. It can be a little easier to deal with. What's really challenging is what happens when you obey God and it's the very act of obedience that creates the painful situation. And see, this is hard for us because a lot of us picked up along the way, maybe not intentionally, just kind of picked up on it, that, that we have a belief system that is a lot more like karma than Christianity. It's like, if, if God, if I do my part, if I obey, I'm not perfect, but to the best of my abilities, if I obey and I do what I believe you're asking me to do, now your part is to come through and do what I need for you to do. For a lot of us, that's just kind of how Christianity feels. And in a lot of churches, that's how Christianity is taught. And, and, and we've got to right-size that because, see, I do believe that blessings flow from obedience. Like, I think obedience matters. And I do think that God wants to bless you, but sometimes the blessings that flow from obedience don't happen until years or decades later. Sometimes the blessing that flows from obedience may not be a blessing we get to experience until we're in heaven with Jesus. Sometimes the immediate effect of obedience is our circumstances actually get worse. What are we supposed to do with that? When we've done what we felt like God asked us to do, and it's that very act that's landed us in this situation. See, what's interesting about that is it's a very normative thing in the New Testament. That's actually what the New Testament teaches, that if you walk with Jesus, you're going to face some trials, you're going to face some tribulations, you're going to face some difficulties, and we don't talk about that enough in church. So we're going to talk about that today, but I hope that it's encouraging. I hope this isn't like a downer message. I hope this is something that maybe if you're walking through that right now, that you'll find some encouragement. Maybe you're in a really good season right now. Take good notes. Eventually, you'll walk through this season too, okay? It's part of what it means to walk with the Lord. And we're gonna look at a guy today from Scripture. This was his experience, that it was literally his act of obedience that created the painful experience in his life. His name's John the Baptist. He's unique. There's no one else like him in the Bible. So before we see his story in Luke chapter seven, let's see if we can learn a little bit about him. So he's, he's in the New Testament, but he really functions more like an Old Testament character. So if you're new to the Bible, when you finish your Old Testament, before you start your New Testament, I wish there was a page that said 400 years. So there's 400 years that passes from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. And during these 400 years, God does not have a prophetic voice until John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a prophetic voice. He's preparing the way for the Messiah. He's telling people there's one to come. People hear his message, they respond in repentance, and so he baptizes them. And John's a unique guy. John lived in the woods. Uh, John wore uh, camel fur, which is never in season, okay? So he wore camel fur. He ate bugs and locusts and honey and uh, never cut his hair, had a long beard. And if you saw John the Baptist walking down the street, you'd hide your children, all right? That's kind of the kind of guy he was. I think he had a crazy look in his eye. That's John the Baptist, okay? He was the kind of guy nobody could really figure out. But he's incredibly godly. 
and he knows that his job is to prepare the way for Jesus. And in an interesting twist to the story, he grows up with Jesus as cousins. So they're cousins. So Elizabeth, John's mother, when she's pregnant with John, Mary, the mother of Jesus, we see this in Matthew chapter two, visits Elizabeth. And when Mary walks in, Elizabeth says, when you entered the room, the baby in my womb began to leap. So literally, from their wombs, John and Jesus share this supernatural connection. And so they grow up as cousins, and now John is fulfilling the mission God's given him, and he knows it's to prepare the way for the Messiah, but he doesn't know that the Messiah is actually Jesus, his cousin. He doesn't put it together until one day where he, he finally sees this, and then some things start to make sense. Like, yeah, I grew up with Jesus, and he was my cousin, and every time we played hide-and-seek, he always won, and he started to go, wait a second. Hold on, right? That's why. And so we see in John chapter one where he finally puts this all together that the Messiah is actually Jesus. John chapter one, starting in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Now, real quick, just a gospel of John, a little note here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book of the New Testament, one of the gospels, tells the life of Jesus. Anytime you're reading John's gospel and you see the name John, it's John the Baptist, okay? Anytime you're reading John's gospel and he wants to talk about himself, he doesn't refer to himself as John. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is incredibly cocky. <laughs> I love that about him. It's also what you can do if you write one of the gospels. So that's what he did, okay? Disciple whom Jesus loved, John. Now this is John the Baptist. So the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, soon a man is coming who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before I did. I didn't know he was the one. So he puts it together here. But I've been baptizing with water in order to point him out to Israel. This is remarkable. So he looks at his guys, his disciples, and he says, hey, start following Jesus. He says, I must decrease so Jesus will increase. He then baptizes Jesus. When he baptizes Jesus, Jesus comes out of the water and literally God speaks with an audible voice and says, this is my son in whom I am pleased. John the Baptist gets to hear God's audible voice and John has completed his mission. He prepared the way for the Messiah. He's pointed people to Jesus and I don't know what John thought was next, but I don't think he expected this. John had picked up some enemies along the way, which just for a second, if no one's ever told you, if you walk with God, you're gonna pick up some enemies, okay? In fact, if you don't have any enemies in your life, you're probably not doing it right. If everybody's on board with the way you're living your life, you're probably not walking with the Lord. So if you walk with the Lord, some people will take notice in a good way. Some people will take notice in a bad way. They will become your enemies. And if Jesus had enemies, and if John the Baptist had enemies, that means you're in good company, okay? But see, John the Baptist's enemies had power. Herod, he's in charge. He and his wife, Herodias. Which you're like, that's cute, Herod and Herodias. That's a nice Valentine's Day card. No, not at all, okay? Because Herodias was still married to Herod's brother. I know, right? Train wreck. So he marries her anyway, and John the Baptist keeps preaching against them. It's like in his message notes. Don't be like Herod and Herodias, okay? So they don't like this. They throw him in jail. And this isn't new to have to be punished for walking with God, but the problem is he stays there for a while. And as days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months, John begins to experience pain, disillusionment, doubt. 
he starts to question everything about his life. He starts to question whether or not he missed God. He starts to question whether or not he's been fooled by his cousin, Jesus. And this pain just sets in. You ever been there? You ever did what you thought God wanted you to do? You're faithful to what he's called you to? And all it did was land you in a difficult circumstance, maybe imprisoned in your own heart, imprisoned in your own mind. And you begin to doubt, you begin to question, you begin to face disillusionment. Listen to me, what you do next matters. Who you talk to next matters. Listen, those of us who have walked with the Lord for a long time, we've walked through those seasons. Some of you are walking through those seasons right now. This is where God's people can be an incredible gift for you. But there's also an amazing opportunity in the midst of that pain, doubt, and disillusionment to experience Jesus in a new way as well. And this is what John sees in his life. And the steps that John takes for us, I believe serve as a great template for us as well. And as we move through this story, I'm gonna point out some things that I think are helpful for us to see. But it's a good reminder that while John is taking his pain directly to Jesus in person, we still can take our pain directly to Jesus through prayer. So let me give you three things as we move through this passage that I believe that we can see. First of all, Pain from obedience allows me to clarify my faith in Jesus. It's actually an opportunity. If we handle it the right way, when we face this pain from obedience, our faith can be strengthened. So what John does is he takes his doubt, he takes his disillusionment, he takes his pain directly to the source, directly to Jesus. So in Luke chapter seven, starting in verse 18, we get this story. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. And so John called for two of his disciples. So he's still got some buddies that are close by. He sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? This is remarkable. This is how bad it's gotten for John. This is the same guy who I just read a few minutes ago said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the same guy who was connected to Jesus even before his birth. This is the same guy who after he baptized Jesus, he heard the audible voice of God. I don't know about you, but it encourages me that someone who heard God's audible voice doubted. I've never heard God's audible voice, but I've doubted. People say, if God would just speak to me in an audible way, I'd never doubt him again. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. Because John the Baptist did. So how is that even possible? Because when we are going through a painful experience, especially one that resulted from our own obedience, it takes us to a different place. And the emotions that we feel will always outweigh the things that we have been taught. This is what John's experiencing. To the extent that he is now questioning whether or not Jesus is actually the Messiah and he's doing it in public, verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their various diseases. He cast out evil spirits. He restored sight to the blind. And then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. And then look at these six phrases. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And then tell him, God blesses those who are not offended 
by me. These guys ask Jesus the question. Jesus continues to do what he'd been doing. He keeps healing people. And then he says, I need you to go back and I need you to tell John these six things. And these six phrases that we just read are pulled directly from different places from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Now, this is significant because Isaiah is the Old Testament prophet who gives us more prophecies about the Messiah than anyone else. And so it stands to reason that if John the Baptist, if his key task was to prepare the way for the assignment, then he would have had great familiarity with Isaiah. In other words, John used some things that, Jesus used some things rather, that John already knew to help him understand what he was going through. This is Jesus' way of looking at John and saying, John, you know me. You know who I am. You've read about me. This is a really incredible gracious way for Jesus to respond. Jesus could have looked at these two guys, Jesus would not have been sinning, by the way, if he had done this, and said, you go back and tell John he needs to grow in his faith. I mean, he baptized me. Does he not remember that day? Tell him he's gotta do a lot better if he really wants to be one of my followers. Jesus doesn't do that. He actually gives him a gracious response that's incredibly personal, And here's the good news for you. He wants to do the same for you as well. But you've gotta go to him. So many times when we have doubt, disillusionment, and we think that we've been fooled or maybe none of this is real, we actually turn away from Jesus. And what I'm challenging you to do is to take that to Jesus. You say, well, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, it must have been a little embarrassing for John to send these guys to Jesus and, you know, how's that all gonna happen? And so many times we feel those emotions like, I I mean, I don't don't wanna tell Jesus I'm doubting him. I don't wanna tell Jesus that that I'm beginning to waver in my faith. I mean, I I don't really wanna let Jesus down. And the good news is you are never holding him up. He's big enough to handle your questions. And not only is he big enough to handle your questions, he will then answer them in a way that clarifies your faith in him. He'll remind you of who he's been before. He'll remind you of the ways he's come through. A mentor of mine, Dr. Ike Reichard, says it this way. Never forget in the dark what you knew to be true in the light. So easy to happen. And when John was sitting there in jail, he had begun to forget. And we're all prone to do the same. But if we will take that doubt to Jesus, it's actually an opportunity for him to remind us once again who he is and once again who he can be in our lives. Let me give you the second thing that happens when we take our pain to Jesus. Pain from obedience allows Jesus to clarify to me who I am to him. This is my favorite part of the story. That, that when these guys go to Jesus and they, and they ask Jesus this question, Jesus gives them an answer and then he sends them on their way. But that, that's only half the story because once they're gone, Jesus is now going to turn to the rest of the people who are there and Jesus is going to give some commentary on what they just witnessed. And so after they left, we pick it back up in verse 24, Jesus talked to the crowd. There's a crowd there, y'all. People heard this. 
So when these guys walked up, it's not like it was just them and Jesus. Other people heard what had happened, and they heard that John the Baptist, the same guy that baptized Jesus, they all saw it on Facebook. John the Baptist had baptized Jesus. This is a little weird, this is a little awkward. Now he's questioning Jesus. Jesus turns to all of them, to this crowd, to talk about John, and here's what he says. Who is this man in the wilderness that you went out to see? Did you find him weak as a reed? Moved by every breath of the wind? Were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? Some translations say soft robes. No people who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury are found in palaces, not in the wilderness. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, look, I am sending my messenger before you, and he will prepare your way before you. And I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. This is my favorite part of the story. Can you imagine being there that day? These guys walk off and Jesus turns to you. Now, if I had been there that day, maybe I'm less spiritual than you, but if I had been there that day, I would expect Jesus to turn and give us all a lesson on faith. I would expect Jesus to turn to us and go, listen, I mean, sometimes in life, things are gonna be challenging, and, and when that happens, don't be like John. I mean, keep your faith strong. I, I would expect, and many of us, that's what we've been taught, that that's how Jesus would react. It's not what Jesus does at all. Jesus actually uses, this is insane, Jesus uses an opportunity where his very identity has been questioned to literally talk in a positive way about John, publicly to other people. He goes, hey, who did you think John was? Do you think John is some weak guy blown by the wind? John's not like some of you men who wear soft robes. Jesus took a shot at how they were dressed. I love that, it's fantastic. She's like, no, John wears camel hair. He's a dude, he's a man, he's not weak, he gnaws on bugs. Jesus is bragging about John right here in front of all of these people. The very time that he probably could have said, don't be like John, he's elevating who John is. He's reminding everybody who he thinks John is. And see, Jesus's opinion of John is the only opinion that matters. Jesus' opinion of you is the only opinion that matters. And then Jesus says something about John that's unbelievable. If he had said this at any point in his life, it would have been unreal. But he uses this opportunity to say, there's never been anyone greater than John to walk the earth. Remarkable. Jesus says John's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than David. What that means is everybody who's ever walked planet earth, Jesus is first. John the Baptist is second, according to our Savior. And we don't find this out until John questions Jesus for who he is. For many of you, you need a fresh encounter with Jesus where he reminds you who you are to him because you're listening to too many other voices. Some of those voices have taken root. And some of the thoughts that are running through your mind these days, they're not good thoughts. Maybe someone's opinion, whether it was a spouse or a parent or a coach or a teacher or a pastor or a parent, somebody's opinion of you has taken root and these thoughts are just rolling around in your mind all the time. And, and see, why that matters is because no one has more conversations with you than you. And the things that we think about, they begin to shape who we are. And, and many of us have not created space for Jesus's voice to enter into that conversation. And I wanna challenge you to do so because see what Jesus can remind you is that your identity is tied to him. The only thing that matters is what Jesus says about you. And many of us, because all of us share this, this deep longing in our lives to hear a voice tell us who we are, 
Many of us are projecting that need onto someone else and it's not good. Many of you are doing that to your spouse. Many of you are asking your spouse to tell you who you are and your spouse will never do that for you. Many of you were taught this is what, I, this is what marriage looks like. When, when you love someone, you love them in such a way that, 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 that they complete you. Jerry Maguire was wrong, y'all. He was wrong, okay? No, your spouse isn't supposed to complete you. You're complete in Jesus, okay? Yeah, some of y'all need to clap. If your premarital counselor told you your spouse was to complete you, go back and get your money, all right? They lied to you. It's not good. Jesus completes you. Now, you can compliment your spouse. That's a different sermon, okay? I don't have time for that one today, okay? Some of you parents, just in a moment of honesty, let me just speak some truth, because the way culture and society shapes all of us, sometimes kids turn into accessories that we just wanna use to impress people. Yeah, that one got real, okay? <laughs> See, your kids are a terrible place to look for an identity. I mean, my goodness. If you wanna find your identity as being a parent, are you kidding? Being a parent is a high blessing, but it can also be terrible. <laughs> and here's why. Again, nobody talks about this, here's why. Your kid's job, their number one job that they had, like they didn't have to sign up for this job, they didn't have to apply for this job, they literally were born into this world with this job. That job is to disobey you. <laughs> it's called having a sin nature. So when your kids disobey you, it's not to hurt your feelings. And if that hurts your feelings, you have misread what it means to be a parent. You can't find your identity in being a parent. Your, your, your goal as a parent is to absorb a little bit of that sin and keep pointing them to Jesus. Say, yeah, go ahead and call me whatever name you want to. My identity's found in Jesus. I got a smile on my face <laughs> as I hand out this punishment for the name you just called me, okay? <laughs> That's how it works. But I'm good. I'm praising the Lord. Go to your room. That's how it works, okay? <laughs> But it doesn't matter if it's being a spouse or being a parent. For some of us, it's our careers. We find our identities in our career and then we get called in and we get laid off. We don't know what to do. And the enemy's greatest strategy in our lives is to use secondary roles to compete for that primary place. You need to go to Jesus and say, tell me who I am to you. Tell me who I am to you. I think we have to do this every day, church. Some of us heard that at our point of salvation. We just need to revisit that conversation. And when you take your fear and when you take your doubt and when you take your disillusionment to Jesus, it's actually that opportunity where Jesus sits down with you and reminds you of something that's so good. Not only does he love you, he actually likes you. He wants to spend time with you. I think the biggest barrier for me going to Jesus is I just think that he's kind of tired of having the same conversation. I think that he thinks I should be further along at this point in my life than I am. And I almost feel this sense of shame to like go to him one more time and go, do I really need to confess this again? And here's what I've learned over the years. That emotion is from the enemy. It's not from him. When I go to Jesus, he says, not only do I love you, I like you, I'm glad you're here. Yeah. 
There's some things I need to remind you about. See, that's the kind and gracious Savior that we love, that, that something that we think would actually be an opportunity for him to correct us or push us away is the very thing he uses, us, uses to draw us in and remind us once again who we are to him. Here's the third point. Pain from obedience, John the Baptist. It allows me to clarify my course for Jesus. See, once John the Baptist knew he hadn't missed God, once John the Baptist knew his cousin Jesus was in fact the Messiah, and once John the Baptist knew who he was to Jesus, he had courage to stay the course. And, and so for John, his life here on earth didn't end well from our perspective, but from God's perspective, it ended incredibly well. And so when I read this passage to you, while it's not a fun passage to read, I don't wanna read it with a somber mindset because John was faithful to stay the course for why God had placed him here. Matthew 14, five through 13 gives us this account. So Herod would have executed John, but he was afraid of a riot because all the people believed John was a prophet. But at a birthday party for Herod, Herodias' daughter performed a dance that greatly pleased him, and so he promised with an oath to give her anything she wanted. At her mother's urging, the girl asked, I want the head of John the Baptist on a tray. The king was sorry, but because of his oath and because he didn't want to back down in front of his guest, he issued the necessary orders. So John was beheaded in the prison and his head was brought out on a tray and given to the girl who took it to her mother. John's disciples came for his body and buried it and they told Jesus what had happened. As soon as Jesus heard the news, he went off by himself in a boat to a remote area to be alone. John stayed the course, no matter the cost. He saw it through to its completion and it broke Jesus' heart when he found out what had happened to John the Baptist. But again, John was now operating not from a place of circumstance, but from a place of identity. And listen, if you know who Jesus is and you know who you are according to Jesus, you can face anything in life. You can face any set of circumstances. And John's example sets a template for 2,000 years of church history, that for 2,000 years of church history, we've had brothers and sisters follow John's example literally to the end where they breathe their last breath here on earth, experience their next breath with Jesus for all of eternity, simply because they were going to live for Jesus no matter the cost. We call them martyrs, martyrs, people who have given their life for their faith. There are people in our world today who are giving their life for their faith in Jesus Christ. We don't ever take for granted the freedom we have to worship Jesus. But martyrs, I would encourage you to learn about martyrs, not just John the Baptist, but, but to learn from these individuals so that we can be inspired for what it actually looks like to stay the course. I wanna share a story uh, with you, maybe with some martyrs that you've never heard before. This is from the first century, second century rather, and these were the Silicon martyrs. This happened in AD 180, and this was in Northern Africa, and uh, this particular group of individuals, there was 12 of them, and the reason why you probably haven't heard of them is very similar to why we celebrate Black History Month. That as Americans, we acknowledge that a lot of stories were omitted from history, and, and Black History Month is an opportunity for us to learn these, revisit these, help our kids learn these stories, and unfortunately, that same theme holds true in church history as well. There have been a lot of contributions um, from African Christians and black Christians over the years that were just left out of history for the same reasons they were left out here in our country. For example, most Christians don't know that for the first, second, and third century, the hub of Christianity was North Africa, that our Christianity actually spread most rapidly there, and, and it's, it's foundational to our faith. And so these 12 African Christians were given the opportunity to worship the emperor instead of 
Jesus, and they were actually given 30 days to change their mind, and they wouldn't do so. And you can actually find the script of the court proceedings. They've been translated from Latin, and why that's fascinating to me is in the middle of the conversation where they're asking these 12 individuals, what do you base your beliefs on? Again, this is the year 180. What do you base your beliefs on? Their answer is, upon the books and writings of Paul, a righteous man. It's one of the earliest examples we have outside of scripture that what we read in scripture is historically accurate, that they're literally carrying around some of the letters that we now have in our New Testament, remarkable. And these 12 individuals faced their death, stayed on course, why? They knew who Jesus was and they knew who they were to Jesus. And church, this is what we've been called to, is to live out of faith like that, that comes with a boldness that we can't generate on our own, but that we can find when we take this type of pain to Jesus. See, maybe you came in here today and you're facing pain from obedience, and you thought it's what was going to push you away from God. But see, what I'm helping you see and what God's word helps us see and what the examples from these 12 brothers and sisters of Christ help us see is these are actually opportunities to grow in our faith to learn more about who we can actually be as Christ followers. And then finally, here's the last thing I think we see from this entire story of John the Baptist and, and this pain that comes from obedience is that pain from obedience reminds me that Jesus has been there too. Jesus knows what pain from obedience feels like. You see, Jesus's pain from obedience was the pain of the cross, so you've heard that Jesus died for your sins, and that's true, but see, that's only half the story. If you flip over the coin, the other part of the story is that Jesus went to the cross out of obedience to the Father. This was God's plan. This was God's great plan of redemption, that God was literally sending his son so that his son could die in our place. And Jesus was faithful to be obedient to God's plan. And Jesus's obedience to God's plan was incredibly painful. And not just the excruciating way that Jesus died. Jesus, Jesus didn't fear facing physical pain. The pain that Jesus knew he was going to have to experience was the pain of being separated from his father. See, church, when Jesus hung on the cross, he literally became sin. And God can't have anything to do with sin. So as Jesus was dying on the cross, for the first time, he wasn't experiencing the presence of his father. And he said, my father, why have you forsaken me? Because God can't have anything to do with sin. And Jesus's obedience led him to that very place. And see, the enemy thought he had won. See, Satan's not omniscient. Satan's not all-knowing. Satan's not in on God's plan. Satan thought that Jesus' death on the cross was Satan's finest hour, but it was actually the pinnacle of his defeat, and he didn't even see it coming. And see, when you and I sin today, God doesn't turn away from us. See, when you and I sin today, we can still experience God's presence because Jesus has already paid the price for that sin. See, when you and I sin today, God doesn't hold our sin against us because God held our sin upon his son on the cross. It doesn't matter what you've done, the price has already been paid. 
It doesn't matter what sin you're beating yourself up over today. God's not beating you up over that sin. Whatever sin that you are feeling guilty over, that is the enemy condemning you of that sin so you can experience guilt from it. But see, what God wants to do through his Holy Spirit is convict you of that sin so you can experience freedom from it. Big difference. And that freedom can only be found through the person of Jesus Christ. But listen, he knows what pain from obedience looks like. When you go to him, here's what he can say to you. I've been there too. I know what that feels like. So as we receive communion today, and if you weren't able to grab some communion elements on your way in, some members of our team will be walking around to pass those out. I want us to focus on the fact that we have a savior who identifies with our pain. That we partake of communion to remember the salvation that was purchased for us on the cross. But can we also remember that it was Jesus's very obedience that led him to that experience and in doing so providing a way for us, for him to identify with us in our pain. And so as we receive the bread today, we're reminded that it was Jesus's broken body for our sin that allows him to identify with us when we go through these painful experiences. And as we drink from the cup today, it's such a great reminder that pain never has the final word. That the pain that caused Jesus to shed his blood was for the purpose of paying for our sin. That God always has a purpose in the pain. And on that particular day when the enemy thought he had won, God's purposes were so much greater to reconcile us back to him. And so Jesus, what can we say but thank you for your obedience to step right into the pain of being separated from the Father so that you could provide the payment for our sin. Thank you. Thank you that that's not the end of the story. Thank you that we don't have to fear death because you defeated death when you walked out of the tomb. Or thank you that we can actually have a life where we experience no fear in life, no fear in death because of who you are and what you've accomplished. Lord, for some of us today, we're walking through some painful experiences and they're tied directly to our obedience to you. And up until this point, we haven't seen the purpose in it. And we just need to be encouraged today. We need to be reminded of who you are. We need to be reminded of what you've done in the past. We need to be reminded that we can trust you. We forget. John the Baptist literally had forgotten your father's audible voice. And we forget your voice as well so many times. Can you speak to us in a fresh way? Can you speak to us in a new way, Lord, for some of us here today, we need to be reminded of who we are to you. We've looked to too many places and too many other people, too many other roles in our lives to gain that primary identity instead of finding our identity in you. Can you speak to us once again and remind us of who it is that you see when you see us? And then, Lord, we wanna have the courage to stay the course regardless of what that means, no matter the cost. So strengthen us in a way where we are those types of people, not just when we're worshiping together in this room, but we're walking scattered into this world that we're doing it for you. 
Speak to us. Fill this room with your presence. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.